Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. As our series ends, we count up the costs and benefits of following Jesus and face the most important decision of our lives. Let's listen now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you're sovereign. You're in charge. We know, Father, that you have claims that you make on us, on our lives. God, would you make those claims abundantly clear to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How are we going to draw a conclusion in our cost-benefit analysis of Christian faith? We started a couple of weeks ago by establishing a framework. We had to decide what the question was we're asking. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, Jesus requires that we make a decision. Can you be my disciples? And then last week, we identified and valued the costs and the benefits of being Jesus' disciples. We identified some of the costs, for instance, family impact and taking up our own crosses. We identified benefits, like a new purpose in life and eternal glory. And we began the process of valuing those costs and benefits. This week, our job is to tally and compare the costs and benefits of Christian faith, of being disciples of Jesus. And what we're saying is that that we expect that when we compare the costs to the benefits, the tally of each, that we are going to be able to make a good decision. We're going to know whether the Christian faith, whether being a disciple of Jesus represents a good value for our investment. Can such a thing become clear at the end of a cost-benefit analysis? Jesus certainly suggests that such is the case. Now, what is at stake in what we're talking about? What's at stake is the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, Jesus suggests that we should enter into a cost-benefit analysis of the Christian faith of being his disciples. In verses 25 through 33, we read, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet 
him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, as Jesus is preparing for this passage, setting up this cost-benefit analysis, the subject earlier in chapter 14, if you'll remember, was who's welcome in the kingdom of God. Earlier in Luke chapter 14, Jesus was at a dinner, a a dinner party at the house of a prominent Pharisee, a, a, a prominent religious leader in that day. During the dinner party, one of the guests remarked out loud, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. In response to that, Jesus told a parable that seemed to throw open wide the gates to the kingdom of God and imply that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. And that then becomes the subject. Is everyone welcome in the kingdom of God? And if so, on what terms? And that's the subject that Jesus is addressing as he then continues after the dinner on his journey toward Jerusalem, surrounded by the crowds. And that's the question that he's addressing as he turns to the crowds here in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, to teach and to confront them. And in these verses, Jesus is linking the cost of being his disciple with life inside of the kingdom of God. Jesus is suggesting that life inside the kingdom of God belongs to those who are his disciples. And so what he's saying is that, that life in the kingdom of God is available now and in the future to those who are his disciples. To those who are his disciples, we see that the kingdom of God in some ways has come even now, and we are already enjoying life inside the kingdom of God as disciples of Jesus. We get forgiveness and righteousness and sanctification and peace. As disciples of Jesus, we get adopted as sons and daughters of God, and we are made citizens of the kingdom of God. And not only are we citizens now of the kingdom of God, but we are ambassadors of King Jesus to the world around us, meaning that we have a mission and a purpose that starts here and now. The kingdom of God in some ways is now. But we recognize that the kingdom of God is also not yet Because we know that the kingdom of God includes King Jesus returning, and he has begun the defeat of sin and death and evil. But we know that one day when Jesus returns, he's going to finally, forever, and completely defeat sin and death and evil. And in the kingdom of God that is not yet, we will be resurrected to enjoy eternal life with Jesus Christ. We get in the the future kingdom of God eternal glory. And so as disciples of Jesus, we get life in the kingdom of God now and then. The kingdom of God is now and not yet for us. And Jesus devotes much of his teaching in the New Testament to helping us understand what that life in the kingdom of God is like. 
And Jesus says about this kingdom of God that it is precious. In one of his parables, he describes it as a pearl of great price. And in describing the kingdom of God as a pearl of great price, Jesus is indicating that the the kingdom of God is priceless. It is a treasure. And so Jesus is actually suggesting that, that the life of a disciple is something like the St. Edward's crown. The St. Edward's crown is actually one of the crown jewels of the kingdom of England, of the United Kingdom. The St. Edward's crown was created in the 17th century for the coronation of King Charles II. And the St. Edward's crown is so heavy that it's only used in coronation ceremonies. At a high moment in the coronation ceremony, the St. Edward's crown is placed on the head of a new sovereign. And it's placed there on the head of the new sovereign, indicating the blessing of God and the weight of centuries of monarchs who have gone before that new sovereign. But the St. Edward's crown is so heavy that that's the only time it's used. After it's placed on the sovereign's head in the coronation ceremony, it goes back to its permanent home in the Tower of London. But you see, the value of the St. Edward's crown doesn't come from the materials used. In fact, if you take the value of the gold and the jewels that are in the St. Edward's crown, its value sits at roughly four and a half million dollars, a paltry sum compared to the value of some of the other crown jewels. The St. Edward's crown value is not in the gold and the jewels involved. The value of the St. Edward's crown instead is in its ability to represent royalty and nationhood and tradition. Because of that, the St. Edward's crown is priceless. And Jesus is suggesting to us here that the life of a disciple, life inside of the kingdom of God, is priceless. It is a treasure that we are to pursue. You see, when we think of the cost-benefit analysis involved in being disciples of Jesus, we are expecting to create two columns, costs and benefits, and to put items in each of these columns, to draw a tally line at the bottom and have a decision that is roughly balanced, two columns that are close to equal. But instead, what Jesus is suggesting to us is that the life of a disciple is life inside the kingdom of God, and life inside the kingdom of God is precious. It's a treasure. It is priceless, something that we chase after. So how might we tally the benefits of being disciples of Jesus. The best way to tally the total benefit of being Jesus' disciples is being loved by God, is being loved by God. You see, there's an old term, an old emotion, an old state of mind that we don't talk about or write about very much anymore, and and that state of mind is, is ecstasy. The Bible defines ecstasy this way, or the dictionary. Same thing, right? The dictionary defines ecstasy as rapturous delight or an overpowering emotion or exultation, a state of sudden 
intense feeling. Those we kind of expect. But listen to the third definition here. The third definition of ecstasy is a mental transport or rapture from the contemplation of divine things. A mental transport or rapture from the contemplation of divine things. That's ecstasy. Now, in our culture, ecstasy, the word the term ecstasy has come to be strongly associated with a party drug. Ecstasy is a synthetic drug that causes hallucinations and a sense of euphoria in people who use it. And so the drug ecstasy is strongly associated with youth culture and with clubs. People go to a club and they take ecstasy and they dance and they experience a sense of euphoria, of rapture, of transport. And that's not what I'm talking about here, obviously. I'm not talking about a party drug. But the very fact that we create a party drug that creates this sense of rapture and delight in us is a constant reminder that there is something in us that longs for rapturous delight, that longs for an overpowering emotion or exaltation, a state of sudden, intense feeling. There's something in us that longs for mental transport or rapture from the contemplation of divine things. We were built to experience ecstasy. And interestingly, because we're built for ecstasy, we pursue it through pharmacology. We pursue it sometimes through our, our desire to achieve. We achieve it sometimes through our, 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 our lust for adventure in life. We're looking for ecstasy. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes ecstasy as a, in terms of being filled by God. And actually, Paul prays for that experience for us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul prays for us that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what is Paul praying for us here? He's praying that Christ, that Jesus would dwell in our hearts that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that we would sense the height and the breadth and the depth and the length of the love of God, that we would be filled with the very being of God. That's ecstasy. Paul is praying for us here that we would experience rapturous delight, a sudden intense feeling, a rapture from the contemplation of being filled with divine things. And now before we get too mystical about the whole thing, Jesus simplifies the sense of ecstasy. And he says that we are built to be filled with an ecstasy that is being loved by God and being filled with the love of God. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus tells us that we have the opportunity, if we love God, to be loved by him and to experience the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And so Jesus says, you have an opportunity to be filled with the love of God through the Holy Spirit. And then as he comes back later in John chapter 14, he expands what God is offering to do for us. And he says, not only can we be filled with the Holy Spirit, but in being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're filled with Christ and with his Father as well. John chapter 14, verse 23 says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will, look at that, love him. And we, that is Jesus, the Son and the Father, will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus says you can be filled not only with the presence of God, but with the love of God. You can be loved by God. And that's what the pearl of great price is. That is, is the treasure of the kingdom of God. That is what ecstasy is. We are offered being filled with the presence of God, being filled with the love of God, and that's the benefit of being disciples of Jesus. We are loved by God. And so that's the benefit tallied for being disciples of Jesus. So if that's the benefit, then let's look at the cost. The best tally of the total cost of being disciples is actually loving God. The best tally of the total cost of being disciples is loving God. Now, in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, Jesus closely links the cost of being disciples of Jesus with obeying God, which is to love God. John chapter 13 through 17 is set on the night before Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and the next day crucified on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And in those chapters, Jesus is spending one more night with his disciples. And during that evening with his disciples, he's explaining being his disciples to them. He's talking about the difficulties of being disciples and the triumphs. He tells them about the resources that are available to them for living the life of a disciple. He talks about the costs and the benefits of being disciples of his. And in that passage, Jesus describes the cost of being his disciple in the simplest of possible terms. He says, to be my disciple is to love me, and to love me is to obey me. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what Jesus is telling us here is that the cost of being a disciple, of, of keeping his commandments, is simply to love him. Can it be possible that it is that simple? Jesus makes the point that the cost of being his disciple is to love him in what he calls the first and greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus had just been asked by a Jewish religious lawyer about the summary of the law, and Jesus summarized the law this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And you say, can it really be that simple that Jesus is saying that to be his disciple, the total cost is to love him? Yes, and Jesus makes this statement over and over again. We are to love God. In fact, 
This first and greatest commandment that what God desires from his people more than anything else is our love occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is the heart of the, of the holiest prayer of the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we read this summary again. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so here as God, as Moses is giving Israel the prayer that is at the heart of their relationship with him, he says, to love me is to know me. And to love me is to be done with all of your heart. That is, for the Jewish people, the, the rational faculty with all of your soul, which is the entire person, and with all of your might, which is all of our strength. And so to love God is to do so with all of our rational faculty, with all of our being, and with all of our capacity. That's what God wants from us. That's the cost of being his disciples. It is at the heart of our faith from the very beginning. That's what God has wanted from us. But as we contemplate paying this cost of being disciples of Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us the Holy Spirit in that process. You see, because when Jesus tells us that what he fundamentally wants from us is love, he's not asking us to feel an emotion toward him or for him. It's something far deeper than that. But in telling us that he wants us to love him heart and soul and might, Jesus is not all of a sudden either creating a new legalism. He's not creating another brand of a try-hard religion. Because in telling us that what God wants from us now is the same thing he's always wanted, which is our love with our full and complete being, Jesus says, in asking this of you now, I will give you my Holy Spirit to make it possible. In John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, we go back to those verses again where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But immediately on the heels of having said that, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So as Jesus calls us to love him, he says, love me with everything you are, with everything that you have, and I will give you my Holy Spirit to make that possible. And as we ask the cost of being disciples of Jesus, we now see the forest instead of just looking at the trees. Because as we have talked about costs, each cost we've talked about is like looking at a tree. And when we look at nothing but trees, it is possible to miss the forest. And here as we back up, Jesus says, the forest that you've been looking at individual trees in is loving me. The forest of cost of being disciples of Jesus is loving God. And here we finally understand what that means. To be disciples of Jesus costs us loving God with all of our rational capacity, with all of our being, and with all of our, of our might, all of our strength, with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the cost of being Jesus' disciples. Cost tallied. Benefits tallied. Being loved by God. 
cost tallied, loving God. Which means it's time to decide. It's time to decide. King Charles III is facing a similar kind of cost-benefit analysis decision right now. You see, immediately upon the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, Charles became the king of the United Kingdom by virtue of law. But in the spring of this year, Charles will go through a coronation. And in that coronation, they will do certain symbolic acts. In those symbolic acts, they will anoint Charles with oil. They will place the St. Edward's crown on his head, and they'll place certain other objects that symbolize sovereignty and rule in his hands. And the point of doing such is to say that from that point forward, King Charles is not simply king by the force and the will of law, but he is king with blessing of God and the marking of God, a marking that can never be taken away. And so when they place the St. Edward's crown on his head, it will no longer simply be the mandate of law that makes Charles king. When Charles allows the St. Edward's crown to be placed on his head, he will then be king by the mandate of God, by the mandate of history, and by the mandate of sovereignty. It can never be undone. Will Charles let them put the St. Edward's crown on his head? It's heavy. And it's weighty. But in exchange for allowing that heaviness and weight to be placed on his head, Charles will get a kingdom in exchange. So yes, Charles will let them put all that weight on his head. We've done the steps ourselves of a cost-benefit analysis. We've established the framework. The question that we're asking ourselves is, can we be disciples of Jesus? We've identified and valued the costs and the benefits, and, and we've tallied now the costs, and the benefits. But you see, the, the process is not the point. We've gone through the whole process, but the process is not the point. The point is the decision, and it is time to decide, can we be disciples of Jesus? But as we get to the decision, we recognize in the end that the decision is not exactly what we thought it was. Jesus told us to count the cost. He told us to enter into a process of a cost-benefit analysis of Christian faith and of being his disciples. But when we think about a cost-benefit analysis, we think about tallying a column that, that has a modest cost at the bottom and tallying benefits that have modest benefits at the bottom. 
And as we think about a cost-benefit analysis, we were prepared to compare modest cost to modest benefits to arrive at a decision. But what we discover at the end is that we are being asked to give everything that we are, our, our, our whole self, we are being called to love God with our rational faculties, with our entire being, and with all the strength that we can muster. And in exchange for that, we are being told that we will be given the kingdom of God, a treasure beyond compare. That is not the decision we thought we were making, but that's the decision that we are being left with. Dallas Willard describes the decision that we face this way. He, he writes, one would be quite sure that to belong to him, that is to Jesus, to be taken into what he is doing throughout this world so that what he is doing becomes your life is the greatest opportunity one will ever have. And so as we come to the conclusion of our cost-benefit analysis, the math should be achingly, painfully clear to us. If the cost of being a disciple of Jesus were to give up the St. Edward's crown, could you give it up? It's the clearest symbol of royalty that exists on earth. It is a symbol of sovereignty, of nationhood. It is priceless. If the cost of being a disciple of Jesus were it to be that you, who owned the St. Edward's crown, were to give it up, would you give up the St. Edward's crown? If it represented everything you have, would you give it up? If it represented everything you ever hoped to have and everything you ever hoped to be, would you give up the St. Edward's crown? If you get the life of a disciple and the kingdom of God in exchange, then without question or hesitation, the answer is yes. Our cost-benefit analysis is complete. Can we be disciples of Jesus? Our cost-benefit analysis suggests that we joyously give anything and everything we are to be disciples of Jesus. It's time to decide. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. 
If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.